2 Corinthians chapter 7. I kind of rushed through the end of chapter 6 last week because I wanted to finish the chapter. But, so I'll back up just a little bit. Paul had been exhorting them to be holy, to not be unequally yoked together, to not let other people pull you down, to not have connections with others that would pull you away from God's calling in your life, and, and, and a call for separation, a difference. He says in verse um, 16, I'll dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Quoting a combination of Ezekiel, is uh, that verse, verse uh, 16 comes from Ezekiel 37. Verse 17 comes from Isaiah 52. And verse 18 comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The whole point is that we need to be different. That we should offer an alternative to what the world is doing. Now, it's so often when we talk about separation for Christians, we confuse it with isolation. And he certainly isn't calling us to not have anything to do with non-Christians or with the world. Paul made it really clear over in 1 Corinthians, hey, you'd have to leave the world to do that. But we are to not isolate ourselves from the world. We are to infiltrate the world. We are to saturate the world with an influence that's an alternative lifestyle. That's a different, showing people that there's a different way that they can live than the way that they are living. If we become just like the world, then we lose our message. How, how can we, how can, when the world sees the church and the church seems just like a cheesier version of the world, they don't, there's no reason for them to want that. You know, if, if it's true, as some people have said, that there's just as much divorce in the church as there is outside the church, and I'm suspicious of some of those statistics, but it's no wonder that they don't want to hear us lecturing them about marriage when we haven't figured out how to do it. If they look at Christians and they're every bit as greedy as people in the world, it's no wonder that they don't see that we're providing another way of life, another set of values. And that's why the scripture always calls us not to fix the world, not to change the world, not to reform the world. It's why I'm so skeptical of every political effort to try to bring godliness to the world. Hey, the Bible would say bring godliness to yourself. Live a godly life. God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. Our job is to fix us. And when God's people do what God's people are supposed to do, we'll change the world. That's how it'll happen. And so Paul's just letting the Corinthians know they were in an evil system. Corinth was a, was a pretty gross place in, in so many ways. But he's just going, show that you can be different. Show that you can be in the world and not of the world. 
give people a legitimate alternative. And sometimes Christians are different, but in all the wrong ways. They're just, like, if you see somebody who looks really weird, you can go, hmm, probably a Christian or maybe a Mormon. But, you know, you, you just, you have that notion there's something odd about you. But the difference that people are supposed to recognize about us is how much we care about others. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And if the world can't see that we care about them, that we are anxious to do good, as far as that goes, if they don't see that we enjoy life and live it to the fullest, then they don't see the kind of separation that they're really supposed to see, an alternative way of living life. See, sometimes we, we misunderstand holiness and, and we don't understand sin. And as a result, we can spend our life harping on things that, that aren't really our agenda and at the same time never experiencing life the way God wants us to. Everything that the world offers, everything that Satan tempts us toward, everything that you would put under the category of sin is simply a cheesy, phony version of what God has created and called life. And, and everything that God tells us not to do, it's because it takes away from life. It takes away from, from the richness of life, the fullness. It takes away from the fact that, that Jesus said, I came to give you life and that more abundantly. And so every sin that the world devises is an attempt to create life without God, without the reality of a relationship with God. And so often we can harp on those sins, but it's important for us to understand where those sins came from. You know, there are people who really struggle with addictions. And what are those addictions? It's an attempt to create artificially some kind of satisfaction that God wants us to find in Him. And if you don't find it in Him, you try to find it in other ways. You look at people who are, you know, you look at marriages that are falling apart, people who are unfaithful to their spouse or people who treat their spouse like dirt. What are they really trying to do? They're trying to take a shortcut to what God would lay out as being a lifetime privilege of two people growing together, committing themselves to each other and discovering that sense of fulfillment that comes when you're both obeying God, you're both serving Him, you're both loving Him, you're growing in Him, and that great fulfillment that ultimately comes from that, and sometimes it takes many years to really get to the point where you're like, wow, I'm finally growing into my marriage. Well, the world would say, take a shortcut. You know, maybe you got the wrong person, maybe you'll find it in someone else. Or people who get frustrated with each other and, and, uh, and abuse each other in relationships. How does that happen? It's because you don't want to be patient enough to let God work, so you decide, I'm going to make this happen, I'm going to make it work. People who spend their lives pursuing meaningless material success, 
It's an attempt to create some sort of satisfaction that we haven't found in the Lord as he wants us to. People who go and take ridiculous chances and risks in different ways are trying to create an excitement that God has for you, that he has laid out. And if you're doing what he is calling you to do, life is thrilling, it's exciting. But if you don't connect with him and understand that, then you look for artificial ways to make that happen. The whole entertainment industry is, is trying to find a way to make you feel alive vicariously through other people's fake lives, or in the case of reality shows, through other people's so-called real lives. Why do we sit and watch so much of that in a box instead of living lives for ourselves? I guess for the same reason why there are actually people who stayed home from church tonight to watch a bunch of overgrown kids knocking a ball around on a field in Yankee Stadium when I know the Yankees are going to kill the Phillies anyway, but <laughs> even if they weren't, how come I enjoy other guys and I'm, and I'm willing to see them paid hundreds of millions of dollars to run around and play when I've lost the sense of what it feels like to run around and play. See, everything that the world offers in order to attempt to create something in our lives is all a substitute and, and, and really it's a replacement for what you had naturally when you were a kid, but somehow you kind of outgrown it or you became jaded or you know, obviously your body begins to fade and won't do what it used to do sometimes. And so gradually we replace that the way a child is so alive and so enthused and so involved. And we substitute for that really sad, kind of like when you could have a child telling you that they love you, um, or you could have a chatty Cathy doll that you pull the string and it says it loves you. What the world offers is chatty Cathy. It's not real. It's, I mean, and think about it. People whose whole life is bound up on the internet, you know, guys in their 40s and 50s who pretend to be 15 so they can have fake relationships with some other guy in his 60s who's pretending to be a 15-year-old girl, and it's like, wow, this is so satisfying. Really? But if you think about it, every sin is that way. God created everything to be enjoyed. God created life to be lived to the fullest. And what sin does is say, here, I'll give you a really good imitation of that. I'll give you an inflatable doll version of that. I'll give you a, an image on a screen of that, and it's almost as good. And people throw their lives away and never really live life. And there's huge chunks of us that are missing because we settle for a cheesy imitation instead of going after life to its fullest, instead of grabbing life by the throat and just going, this is what I, this is what I want, this is what I was created for. And 
it will never satisfy. Sin will never satisfy. And the more we understand what God means when he tells us to be different, when he tells us to be holy, the closer we will get to life the way it's really supposed to be lived. And the amazing thing about God is even when other people in your life fail you and God gave you an opportunity for you together to enjoy life, yet it's amazing that this is something personal for each of us and no other person can really rob you of life. You will discover life as you grow closer to God even when the people around you don't want to play you'll find that you can play, that you can enjoy, that you can experience fulfillment, that God will come and, and, and play with you and interact with you. And that is also contagious, where when there's one person who's enjoying tossing a ball around, often other people come and go, hey, let's throw it back and forth, literally or figuratively. Joyful people attract joyful people and that's what fellowship is and so our job is to be as real and as complete as we possibly can and that creates all of the fulfillment that you're really designed to enjoy the trouble with sin is it as we were sharing Sunday from first Timothy chapter 4 it often sears your conscience it, it causes you to be dead to life. It causes you to lose your feelings, much like leprosy does to a person when they, when, when they have leprosy and it kills their, their nervous system to the point where they no longer can feel. When we settle for imitations of things, we can actually lose our flavor and our taste for that which is real. There are some people who prefer cream corn to corn on the cob. And you go, what? There are some people who prefer margarine to butter. There are some people who like ice milk better than ice cream. There are some people who like chicken better than beef. Oh, now that's a different... <laughs> but, but, you know, our job as Christians is to be whole. And the word holy comes from the same root as the word whole, to be complete. And we are to live life to its fullest, as much as we possibly can, to experience everything that God has for us, to show others what life can be like. And go, you don't have to get caught in this matrix of phoniness. You can actually live real life. And that's where God meets us. Because that's what he came to give us. And the more we do that, the more people will be drawn to us. The more we look like an imitation of the imitation, like artificial cream corn, then of course people aren't going to be drawn to that. No one goes, ooh, that looks good, I want that. But it's our job to discover life to its fullest in Jesus Christ. And then to radiate that and to wake people up around us and let them know, you can do better. You have a God who loves you. He knows you. Life can be more fun than you could ever imagine when you live it with him. Your joy can be complete and full. And so 
That's what we're talking about when we talk about holiness, when we talk about separation. And really, when we talk about righteousness as opposed to sin, it's always about, are you going to experience life the way God designed it? Or are you willing to settle for something less than that? And every sin and every compromise is settling for something that's not nearly as incredible as real life with Jesus. And so he says, sorry for the little mini-sermon, but we'll get through this chapter too. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He goes, understanding what God promises, let's get rid of all the pollution that's in our lives. Let's reject artificial, and let's not settle for anything less than real and full and, and complete. And, and that's what a holy life is. It's like, I don't want to sit there and watch other people play games. I want to enjoy God. I want to walk in fellowship with Him. And I want to be someone who people can look at and say, that's how you can do it. I'm drawn to that example. Aren't there some people, and, and this is why Jesus talked about becoming like children. You watch almost any child except one that's been really abused really bad, and you can drop them into any situation, and everything is a toy to them, and everything is a delight, and they have this simple faith, and, and they have this amazing sense of flexibility that they can be crying uncontrollably and then laughing hysterically. They can experience the extremes of emotion, and they do okay with it. A lot of times, they're laughing as tears are still in their eyes from when they were just crying. But they have this simplicity of faith that takes life as it comes and looks at every day as an adventure. That's why they wear us out. And, and that's why we would rather plop them in front of a TV and, and train them in artificial matrix-type living instead of real life, because real life wears us out because we sold it out a long time ago. What a, I, I was reading in uh, Sally McRae's blog today. Um, she's the wife of Eddie, our worship leader and youth pastor. And Mackenzie, their little girl, their little almost four-year-old girl, was taking a long time to wash her hands. And they were trying to have dinner. And she goes, Come on, Mackenzie, it shouldn't take that long for you to wash your hands, Sally said. And Mackenzie goes, well, I'm talking to Jesus. <laughs> she goes, okay, you do that. And then Mackenzie turned off the water and she said, I love you too, to the Lord. And it's like, how come, how do we lose that? How does that become something that's so foreign that we think it's cute when that's real? He's really with us. And that's the life that God's calling us to, to, to get back to reality. And that's the life of holiness. It's a life of wholeness. We're, we're like wheels with a flat edge. And, and God wants us to be whole and complete. Now he says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. He goes, come on, let's really connect. Oh, Open your heart to me. People have been bad-mouthing me, but 
you know me. I haven't ripped you off. I haven't done anything against you. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's love. That's fellowship. That's how we should be with not just our families, our friends, our loved ones, and everyone in the church, and people who are a part of the church halfway around the world. They should be in our hearts, and we in their hearts, and, and we live and die together. We're going to spend eternity together. I love Paul's just bold expression of his connection to them and his love for them. If somebody's going to correct you, somebody's going to tell you you're wrong, as he had to do with the Corinthians, it really helps if they, if they also say, I'm living and dying with you. I'm going to be with you forever. You're in my heart. I'm in your heart. If someone believes that about you, you can tell them anything, and they'll take it. And that was Paul. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. I'm being really honest. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Now, this is a church that the whole book of 1 Corinthians was written because they had serious problems. A guy who was committing incest, and they were approving it. People who were drunk at communion all kinds of crazy things that were happening, and yet still he's saying, I've been bragging about you. I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm, uh, I'm behind you. I, I'm honest with you because I think that I can get away with that because I know we have this connection. You remember what I've been to you. You know how I've ministered to you. And so I'm bold. And he says, great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. I'm not bummed at you. I've been completely comforted. Now, part of this is because, remember earlier in chapter 2, we saw that Paul like, was planning on going to Corinth, and he skipped over Corinth and went to Achaia, up in the northern, or to Macedonia, sorry. Corinth is in Achaia. And he and he went north instead of going there because he was afraid of how they were doing. But then as he sent the letter of 1 Corinthians to them by the hand of Titus, and then Titus came back and let him know how they were doing, Titus encouraged him. And so now he's saying, man, I'm joyful. I'm, I am filled with comfort. I'm totally cool with you guys. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. I was worn out. Anybody feel that way right now? But we were troubled on every side. That word troubled is the word that's translated a lot of places, tribulation. It's a word that means you were, the walls were closing in on you. It was narrow. You were in a pinch. You, weren't, you were losing your options. He goes, I was worn out physically. I was troubled in every way. I was crowded and feeling oppressed. So physically, emotionally. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. He goes, look, I was a mess. You got to understand, I was in no shape to come and minister to you. That's why I sent Titus to you, because I was falling apart. I love that Paul is so honest, especially to people who had been kind of listening to accusations that he was weak, that he was a flake, that he was inconsistent. And 
And Paul just opens his heart up and he goes, yeah, I was worn out. I was afraid. I was feeling just emotionally quenched and I was feeling like I'm in a battle with everyone around me. That's where I was. That was me. <laughs> Funny way to defend yourself, huh? Honesty. But that's what it all comes down to. But he said, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus came at just the right moment to comfort me. And when Titus came to me, it was God reaching out to me. The word for comfort there both times in that, in that verse is um, the word parakaleo. It's the same word that talks about the Holy Spirit being a comforter. But para means alongside. And kaleo means to call. And so the word comfort means to call alongside. It's a, it's a way of, as I often describe it, as putting your arm around somebody and pulling them in close to you. Or it's like somebody coming to you when you're really going through it, and they go, come here, come here. And, and just being willing to give you the time to draw close to you, to show their love for you, it's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful concept. And it's great to know that we can do it. We can do the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and we need to be sensitive to know when people need our parakaleo Because in a lot of ways, you don't feel it until some person does it for you. And it can be in a real simple way, just a call or an email. or you know. But somebody who just stops long enough to go, I notice you, I care about you. And feeling the comfort of God coming through another person is incredible. And Paul, the, the great Paul, needed this. From a kid, Timothy, he needed it. And, and he received that as comfort. Please be open to God using you to go to other people and just go, hey, come here. Let me give you, a, you know, let me have a minute of your time. What's going on with you? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? It's the greatest privilege that we have is the privilege of comforting others. Because if Paul got in tough straits, so do we. And it's a horrible feeling to be in a bad situation. Your body's thrashed and your emotions are twisted and you're afraid of what's going to happen next and there's nobody there Paul was just so grateful that, that Titus was there and was letting them know that their word through Titus to him provided a great comfort this is just one of the reasons why I really try to brainwash you to periodically go around the world somewhere else and for a week I don't care if, if you're so busy that you can only do a short term missions trip for a day that can mean so much to somebody like Paul who's isolated serving God and afraid and they don't want to say it because nobody puts that 
Somebody, when missionaries write their prayer letters, they aren't as honest as Paul. They don't say, I'm beat, I'm thrashed, I'm scared, I'm pressed out of measure. I feel like I'm dying. Please send money. You know, you just... <laughs> and so they could be going through that, and, I, and I've seen this where... And, and you begin to question, is it worth spending the money and taking the time to go travel to see someone who's a long ways away? And, I, and I've seen what it can mean sometimes to them. And it, you don't have to go with some kind of a purpose or go teach a bunch of sermons or whatever. It's just going, hey, come here. How are you? What's going on with you? And there are a lot of ways that we can do it, but it's just vitally important. And it's an incredible privilege to represent the Holy Spirit to someone who is hurting and to say as he is saying, hey, come here. I, I don't know everything you're going through. If you need to dump on somebody, I'll take it. Um, but I just want to tell you, God's with you and I'm praying for you. And to do that calling alongside. Somebody in the church has been going through a tough time. Sometimes they go through something hard. Maybe you know somebody's been through a divorce recently or whatever, and you're like, well, I don't know what to say. And what do you say to somebody who got a divorce? Congratulations. Or, you know, hey, I have somebody I want to fix you up with. Or, you know, a lot of times you don't know what to say. But how about start with, hey, come here. Not if you're trying to pick up on a person that just got divorced, but it, just, to, just to let them know that you notice them, that they're a part of your life, that you, that you love them, that you care about them. Just to go up and grab somebody and pat them on the back or something, just to let them know there's a real connection, there's somebody there. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as he gives you opportunities to do that. Don't ever be afraid to do that. Don't ever feel like, oh, they're going to think I'm weird. Nobody, you know, like, there are some people who just everything they do comes off weird, but that's cool because then you can get away with being weird. Nobody thinks anything of it, but basically anyone would appreciate this kind of comfort. Anyone would appreciate this kind of encouragement. We need to do it more. And if somebody like Paul appreciated it from Titus, I guarantee the person sitting next to you might need it tonight will sooner or later and uh, look for those opportunities beautiful verse there God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the consolation the comfort with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire your mourning your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more he goes I was comforted when he told me what you guys were going through. And I was comforted by him when he said you were comforted by me. It's a, a mutual thing. And I've oftentimes when I've gone to try to comfort somebody else, they end up comforting me more than I comfort them. It works in a beautiful way. And so he says, um, verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, 1 Corinthians, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. He goes, I'm glad I was honest with you, even though at the time I was like, oh man, what am I doing? Why am I saying this? For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, 
but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. He said, when I confronted you, it hurt you. You were bummed. But you did what people are supposed to do with conviction. You repented. And, and real repentance always leads to wonderful restoration and appreciation for the one who loves you enough to take a chance to talk to you about something where you're wrong. And that you, you will feel sorry whenever you realize you've been blowing it. But real godly sorrow leads to joy. It's like so easy to have closure. Now, sometimes somebody will point out to you something that you've done wrong and they rub your nose in it or they want to just make you feel bad about it or their, their attitude is kind of like, if you apologize, then they're kind of like, okay, well, we'll see. We'll see whether you really are sorry or not. And, and a lot of times that's the, the heart with which we receive correction. And sometimes it's because the correction isn't done in a way that really feels like compassion and love. But when it's done right, it's shared in love, it's received, it leads to sorrow, but sorrow leads to joy and ultimately to salvation to being delivered. Every one of us are walking with one eye closed. Every one of us is seeing the world through squinting because Satan's such a good liar. And each one of us has an opportunity to try to help each other see where we're weird. And you can either just get mad about that and stay mad which is what usually happens and why Christians can't get along with other Christians a lot of times. Because somebody had the boldness to be honest with you and now you've had it with them. Maybe it was because of the way they did it. I don't know. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But a godly response to correction is to go, oh man, I'm not going to do that again. Thanks. And they're like, Phew glad we got that taken care of it's closure it's past that's the way a good relationship works that's the way ministry is supposed to work and so he describes godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to deliverance not to be regretted in other words not looking back putting it behind you and moving ahead not holding it against a person but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow that the world produces, just tearing you down. And a lot of times I think when Christians try to correct other Christians, they really use the worldly way of doing it. We think that if we can convince somebody that they're nothing, that it's going to help them somehow. And so Christians will often talk to you in a way that just you walk away feeling like you're dirt. That's what the world does. God doesn't ever do that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if someone talks to you and, and, and it just leaves you feeling horrible and there's no redemption in there, well, that's really not 
God's way of doing it. But, verse 11, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, and what diligence it produced in you. You got after it right away. You listened and you took action. In the case that he's probably referring to is with the kid who was um, having an affair with his dad's wife, and they were thinking it was okay. Right away, they went and dealt with it because Paul called them on it. They were bummed, but they were diligent. <laughs> they got after it. What clearing of yourselves. The Greek word there for clearing of yourselves is just understood. The word for clearing there is the word for, is the word apologia. Same word that we get apologetics or an apology. Um, and it just, it just is a word that refers to taking your words and getting away. So apa means away from, logos is words. So the idea of deal with this in a way that you can use your words in order to bring about constructive change. You cleared, you apologized. What indignation. You were actually, you were bummed at what you had done. Repentant. What fear. You, you had respect and you go, well, we don't want to keep doing this. What vehement desire. You were passionate. What zeal. You were serious about it. What vindication. You were anxious to, to correct this. You wanted it to be, you wanted it to be right. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now, that word clear is different than the word translated clear apologia in the, in the beginning of the verse. The word clear here is just the word hagios, which means holy, complete. But clear isn't a bad translation for it. Clean would probably be a better translation. And the idea is you became complete. You closed the loop. You dealt with the issue. And right away, when you realize that what you were doing was less than the life that God has for you, you just dealt with it so that you could become whole again, so that you could become more complete. And that's the godly response anytime we realize, ooh, I'm messing up in some area. Because messing up in some area, sinning, is simply missing out on a part of life. And so by making that right, you make yourself holy. You make yourself whole and complete and clean. You close the loop. Okay, there's a big chunk of me that's missing. Oh, man, I want to put that back in there. I want to get that puzzle together because my desire ultimately is for my life that's like a puzzle that's messed up for it to be put together. So the whole picture develops. And ultimately what the... If you look at the box, the puzzle is going to look like Jesus. And every time we have an opportunity to be corrected, it's an opportunity to put another piece into place and to become more whole. And that's what God wants to do. That's all he wants to do. He doesn't ever want to make us just feel bad for feeling bad. He would never want to push us away from him or from each other. He's trying to fix us and make us holy, make us complete, a whole, complete unit. And when he corrects us, it's with the intention of doing just that. And he said, you guys did that. Therefore, verse 12, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, 
I wasn't so much worried about that guy. Nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, the guy's dad, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. And this is really good. It's the idea that I wasn't so indignant about we've got to get this situation straightened out. He said, the whole reason I was correcting you was for you. Hey, this guy's doing what he's doing. The other guy's letting it happen. I'm not trying to fix them, necessarily. Now, the offer was there to restore the kid, and, and Paul ultimately called him to that restoration, as we've already seen. Um, and that's great. But the idea was, I am correcting you because it's good for you. And that's a good litmus test for us when we're correcting someone else. Am I correcting someone because I need to get it off my chest? Am I correcting someone because I want to defend someone that they might be hurting? If so, that's probably not the ideal way to do it. We should always correct someone for them, for their benefit. Because if we don't have their best interests at heart, we probably haven't earned the right to correct them, even if they're wrong. Um, the law corrects people for the benefit of the victims. A Christian corrects others for their own benefit. That's, that's the agenda. That's what, that's what Paul says here. Our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. He did it so, so they would see how much he cares about them. If you see somebody who's messing their life up and you just let it go, you don't care. But if you care enough to be honest with them, if they're godly, they're going to see that and appreciate it and see it as interpreted as being love. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Everybody's happier. Everyone feels great. We made it through this. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. When I said good things about you, I meant them. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. I love this, that he could say this about the church in Corinth. Because 1 Corinthians showed what a mess they were. 2 Corinthians shows that they were still a mess in a lot of ways. And yet, Paul could seriously say, I'm proud of you guys. I, I'm bragging about you. I, I'm blessed by you. And would to God that we could see each other this way? that when we looked at each other, we would see all the good that God has done and not just the glaring weaknesses that remain, we would be much more qualified to help people with their areas of weakness if we would also sincerely affirm all of the things that they're doing that are right. And so he's going, you guys have a lot of problems, but see, we look at the church at Corinth and go, what a messed up church. Paul, who pointed out all these areas where they were messed up, goes, I'm bragging about you guys. I'm proud of you. Now that is really affirming and encouraging for someone. If someone can come to you and they see all of your good, and then they love you enough that they can also kind of share how you can do better. 
But he's again affirming to them, hey, believe me, I was bragging about you to Titus even before I found out what you had done, and I meant it. It was sincere boasting. I really am proud of you guys and, and what you've done and, and what your lives have been. And, verse 15, his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. Titus got to see you guys obey and take action and deal with your your problems, and he loves you even more. He, he, he loved you already because I had told him what great people you were, and he had met you, and he cared about you. But his affection is even greater when he sees you growing. And a lot of times for us, we get tired of people's problems. And we can grow kind of insensitive to them even as even as we see them trying. But Titus was like, man, yeah, he saw the un ugly underbelly of the church in Corinth, but he loved you guys and he loves you even more as he sees you addressing these issues and dealing with them. What a nice affirmation. He remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Of course, his confidence is really in the Lord, but he said, I'm confident in you in everything. You know, how would that make you feel if somebody that you looked up to said, I know you can do this. I have confidence in you in everything. Absolute, total, complete confidence. How could you say that? Because obviously, you know God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You have Christ. I have complete confidence in you. Confidence is so important. And usually, you can't work up confidence on your own. Usually, confidence comes because other people believe in you and are looking to you and encouraging you and and they believe you. And I think of so many times when I have felt a lack of confidence, and then knowing that someone else had confidence in me helped me to just go for it, to continue to try and to put up an effort. And Paul was that for the Corinthians. He goes, I have confidence in you in everything. What a great what a great example he was. What a great relationship he formed with people that he was ministering to. That rather than saying, I don't know if you guys are going to make it, he's like, no, you can make it. I know you can, and I believe that you will. Would to God that we would all have that for each other. When we see each other fail or come short or mess up, that as we encourage each other, we would go, come here. I know you can do it. I believe that you will. I know this is going to work out. I know that you're going to grow through this. I know you're going to get better at what you're doing. I see God working in your life, and I believe you. I believe in you. This is something that's just critically important in a marriage. If you feel that your spouse doesn't believe in you anymore, it's so discouraging. It's so important with kids that kids 
know that, that their parents believe in them and trust them. Even when they've shown themselves to be untrustworthy, to know, I know you're going to make it. I know you're going to get there. It's going to happen to you. And in the body of Christ, in every relationship that we form, would to God that he would help us, instead of being critical of each other, that we would be encouraging and comforting and that we would have faith in each other to say, I believe that you can do what you don't even believe you can do. I have more faith in you than you have in yourself. And that's a great gift to give to someone else. And to do anything less is just to flat out doubt God. People can discourage us. People can let us down. But the story's not over yet. So keep on believing and keep on encouraging. Keep on trusting. And if, it's, if you have to forgive someone 70 times 7, keep your confidence up. And and God will come through in amazing ways.